Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. This will be my personal rough draft of the history of 2021. But before starting, I wonder, how would you summarize the year just ending? You can go to the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, and use the contact form to let me know. I do respond. And if you value the work I've done at FRDH in 2021, please make a donation so the podcasts can continue through 2022. Putting to one side, for a moment, events, 2021 was a year, for me at least, when time was recalibrated to a much slower pace, as when recovering from a traumatic injury or major illness, the plans, the work that was due, went more slowly. You surrendered to the new pace, the pace of body healing, which, as the doctor says, and the pain and weakness inside you confirms, will take as long as it needs to. Of course, this was happening throughout the society because of the pandemic. In the early weeks of the year, vaccination against COVID was slowly coming my way. It would take as long as it would take for it to be my turn. I began to slow the pace of living down, more or less confined to quarters, until my invitation to get jabbed arrived. By then it was late March, and the big event had already happened. The first week of the year had brought the Trump-inspired assault on the Capitol building. His violent rejection of the election results had been predicted by some of the more realistic observers of American politics in recent years, and those who understood the intersection of psychopathology, fascistic ideology, and raw opportunism that Trump and the party he took over represent. Finding the right word to describe the mob assault became an immediate topic of conversation. Coup d'etat or mere riot? Putsch seems to me the right word because of its historic resonance. Hitler's Munich Putsch, Beer Hall Putsch, in 1924 was a fiasco and a failure, as the capital assault was. But it was also a warning about the means the National Socialists would use to obtain power if they could not win it within constitutional rules. As the year went on, and more facts came out about the collusion between Trump, some of his advisors, and some Republican members of Congress to stop the certification of the Electoral College result and seize power, the more the word putsch made sense. Luckily, Trump's pathology includes a titanic laziness. He's there to pose for the picture and preen for the crowd, but he, unlike Hitler, is not willing to actually do the executive work to make something a success. The pathology of people like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and lesser members of the Republican Congressional Caucus is one of slavish sycophancy in pursuit of power. Sycophantic cowards don't lead successful coups but the fire next time may be set by more dedicated, less flawed people. Anyway, the Munich Putsch analogy doesn't quite hold when it comes to legal punishment for the instigators of the Capitol Hill assault. Hitler went to prison. Trump never will. And that might not be a bad thing. Hitler was a special prisoner. He received visitors, organized the next steps on the march to power, wrote Mein Kampf, It was a fairly productive period for him. And the most important way in which the Munich 1924 analogy doesn't hold up, the Volkischer Beobachter, the People's Observer, the Nazis' newspaper, was banned. 
No one in the land of the First Amendment would even suggest taking Fox News or the lesser propaganda mills that maintain the brainwashing of the GOP's support off the air. Although occasional discussion in mainstream spaces, like the New York Times op-ed page, about whether the First Amendment is fit for 21st century purpose, is something that marks 2021 as different. And two weeks after the failed putsch, coup, riot, whatever, Joe Biden was sworn in. Normal service resumed. But it was the normal established over the last 15 years. The normal of total Republican non-cooperation in legislating. The normal of a few nominal Democrats like Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema who vote the interests of their corporate donors, not their constituents, blocking a genuine progressive democratic agenda from being enacted. The narrow democratic majority in the Senate was nothing of the sort. This was not a surprise to anyone who pays attention to American politics, but the impression I got from my daily troll through the Washington press is that the people who get paid, many of them rather well, to report on the political process were caught completely unawares by the headwinds Biden quickly encountered. The framework to describe the situation facing the new president and his ambitious attempt to reinvigorate FDR's New Deal for the 21st century should have been that he had no majority in the Senate and that anything that got through both houses of Congress quickly would be a miracle. As the weeks went by, following the dramatic January, I found myself relying less and less on the journalism I pay for, the New York Times, the Washington Post, frustrated because I could not verify for myself what was going on in Washington and its effect on the country at large. From early 2016 through the autumn of 2020, I made eight long-form radio pieces for the BBC chronicling Trump's rise and the changes in American society, the Republican Party specifically, that led to his presidency. Making these documentaries, I managed to get to the U.S. from London about three times a year and was able to maintain some kind of feel for my native country. The BBC did not send me back for the election. That was for their daily news people to cover. But I wanted to be in the U.S. for the end of the Trump presidency. There wasn't much doubt in my mind he would lose to Biden. With the help of some generous FRDH listeners, I was able to buy a round-trip ticket to the U.S. to see the era out. I went to Pennsylvania for the last few days of the campaign and then was in Philadelphia for the count that would ultimately give the state to Biden and with it the presidency. While standing outside the Philadelphia Convention Center, I was notified that my return flight to London was canceled. COVID resurgence. I rebooked, and that flight was canceled as well. The world was changing. With Biden in the White House, the BBC lost interest in my proposals for long-form explorations of America's convulsions, and I found myself marooned physically and professionally. For the first time in three decades, I was not inside the bubble. I was not a working journalist. I was, like most people, a mere consumer of the news. Now, I knew that the great institutions of journalism had become degraded over the last decade and a half, as the business model to sustain them changed rapidly. But because I was doing my own reporting, I could ignore the flaws. I was informing myself and wasn't wholly reliant on the Times or Post or Guardian or any other paper where I might get a few free articles a month to tell me the facts about an event. In 2020, 
I did a five-part series of talks for the BBC about those changes in journalism. The most critical was the need to maintain reader engagement online. Even papers that have paywalls need to keep clicks coming through. They need to keep up with free sites that are constantly updating with half-reported news stories to maintain audience engagement. The engagement imperative, that's how online ad rates are set, means every news story becomes life or death, even though most are not, especially on Capitol Hill. The legislative process is dull beyond belief. You can get a click by headlining the president's Build Back Better program prices $2 trillion or $1.9 trillion or $1.7 trillion. Telling people in the headline that that amount will be spent over 10 years will garner fewer clicks, as $200 billion a year is kind of ordinary government spending in this day and age. That's print journalism. Broadcast journalism has long given up on reporting. It's primarily chat between a studio-based host or presenter, a reporter on the scene who should really be digging up information rather than chatting into a camera lens, or an expert, uh, another way of saying a media-trained propagandist for one viewpoint or another. Very few people actually watch the 24-hour news channels, but they're on all the time in print journalism newsrooms, and lines that come out of such broadcast conversations can become the news. Dr. So-and-so says such-and-such, and at least for the next few hours, through social media, that's all anyone's talking about. Throughout the spring, as time slowed down and I got my second shot, I found myself doing what so many in America and around the world do going to Twitter to find out what's really happening. Now, don't laugh at the absurdity of going to Twitter to find out the facts. It's difficult, I admit, but it's not impossible. I started using Twitter in 2009, when my book Emancipation was published. You have to be on Twitter, everyone said. That's how you market the book. Well, it turned out Twitter is not an effective tool for telling people to read a book about how the end of 500 years of ghettoization of European Jewry, beginning with the French Revolution and Napoleonic Conquest, led to an explosion of new thinking and cultural achievement by a marginalized minority as it tried to assimilate, was rejected, tried again, and eventually was damn near eliminated altogether. No, no, no. Twitter isn't good for that conversation. But in 2009, I wanted to return to journalism and without much difficulty found reliable voices on Twitter from Iraq and Iran, India and Egypt, the Balkans, China, and was able to build a Twitter feed that was my own personal news wire service. Inevitably, though, the feed became encrusted with the egomania and half-truths and rumor-mongering and flat-out disinformation for which Twitter is famous, and the hysteria. This is particularly true of the American part of my feed. In 2021, there seemed to be two main themes. Why haven't all the people who stormed the Capitol been arrested along with Trump and the main architects of the failed putsch? Simple reason. Unless you're going to declare martial law and suspend the Constitution and arrest everyone and send them to a work camp, you have to follow legal procedures, which, like COVID or recovering from knee surgery, will take as long as it will take. Then there is the unseemly argument about identity politics among people who, in theory, are on the same side. This is a generational disagreement, and I'm on the side of the elderly here. On Twitter, where the word some is bound, everything is an absolute. White people are this or that, not some white people 
are this or that. In Twitter discourse, too many on the younger side of the generational divide, I mean those under 50, assume most Americans don't know about the country's tormented racial history. And I'm not talking about the cranks. I follow professors of philosophy and media studies at America's most prestigious universities. It's disheartening that senior public intellectuals give in, for engagement's sake, to ahistorical thinking. Those of us who became teenagers in 1963, the year of the March on Washington and John F. Kennedy's assassination, and who graduated high school a week after Bobby Kennedy and two months after Martin Luther King were murdered, and who saw the riots and the passage of civil rights and voting acts on the evening news, all in the space of five years, have a very good idea of America's tortured racial past. And there are tens of millions of us. Hannah Nicole Jones, the moving force behind the New York Times 1619 project, wasn't alive during those days. She was a year old when Roots, which aired in 1977, became one of the major cultural events of that decade. In 1968, college students ached for revolution, the way we ached for sex. Nowadays, Twitter makes it seem like the young ache for oppression, and sex is too fraught to contemplate. Charge and countercharge about cancel culture. It's a bizarre way of amusing ourselves to death. The other Twitter trend this year was that democracy is doomed. State legislatures are drawing new congressional district boundaries, gerrymandering a permanent Republican majority in Congress. Or so the Twitter claims go. Things you see on Twitter. 2022 is the last chance to save democracy. So long, America. The democratic experiment was fun while it lasted. This defeatism is the essence of Twitter discourse. By mid-year came a longing for the days when the main news was other societies disintegrating, not America, and, to a lesser degree, Britain, hit by a perfect storm of COVID, Brexit, and the least able prime minister leading the most nakedly corrupt government in its modern history. When the Biden administration abruptly withdrew from Afghanistan, the world was reminded that there were other societies on the brink, and people clearly want news organizations to tell them about the rest of the world. Podcasts with two former colleagues, Sarah Chase and Lynn O'Donnell, who covered the Afghanistan story starting with the invasion in October 2001, were the most listened to episodes in FRDH's five-year-long history. In mid-autumn, I wrote and recorded a series of five talks to mark the 80th anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attacks and America's entry into the war for BBC Radio 3. Pearl Harbor is not really that big a deal in Britain. Understandably, by December 7, 1941, the date that still lives in infamy but is hardly remembered anymore, Britons had lived through Dunkirk, the Battle of Britain, and the Blitz, Operation Barbarossa had put Leningrad under siege, and the Wehrmacht was within spitting distance of Moscow. The Holocaust of bullets was well underway, the massacre at Baba Yar outside Kiev being the most notorious killing spree. But throughout what is today Ukraine and Belarus, the Jewish population was in the process of being totally eliminated, all before December 7, 1941. Then America finally declared war. My idea was to retell some of the war stories I had heard growing up, pass them along to the next generation, explore the process of transmission through which family stories become, if not historical fact, then part of the historical weave. 
You can listen to the pieces at BBC Sounds. The series is called Our Father's War. These were stories that I had heard 50 years ago, for the most part, that had never left my memory. And in retelling them, I used the help of Dr. Google to see if the stories as I remembered them measured up to the factual historical record. I was overwhelmed by how closely memory matched the facts. Streaming at the National Archives website, for example, was a digitized copy of film shot by my college girlfriend's father through the cockpit window of his bomber on a mission over Germany. The film also included footage of him horsing around with his crewmates. In this home movie, he's roughly the same age I was when he told me, eyes brimming to the edge with tears, that he had flown the Dresden raid when that city was destroyed and between twenty and 25,000 civilians were killed. We didn't know, he said. The effect of seeing that man, who I liked as a youth, and who I only knew as a very serious senior executive in the Bell system, was devastating. When I recorded the five pieces, I broke down in tears repeatedly. Now, I'm a professional, that doesn't happen. But saying goodbye, a feeling that it's too late, that defeatism has replaced the spirit that united America and defeated fascism, overwhelmed me. Others worry about the phase of history the U.S. entered in 2021 as well. A Brazilian economist, with whom I have become friendly through Twitter, sent me a message after the off-year election. Can America sort itself out? We need an America that is strong if we're to overcome our own crazy government. It's a common sentiment. As this slow-moving year drew to a close, the New York Times ran an op-ed by an Egyptian woman, Leila Suef, whose son, Allah, has spent most of the last three years as a political prisoner of the Sisi regime. She ended the piece, People often ask me how they, living in America or Britain or the other countries of the global north, can help. Allah's answer always is this. Fix your own democracy. Safeguard it. There's no better way to help. Looking ahead to 2022, that's the message to remember. Don't give in to fear or despair, much of it induced by the strange evolution of media. American democracy is under threat. That's not media-induced paranoia. But those who threaten it really are as disorganized and in some ways ridiculous as they looked when they ransacked the Capitol. They're led by a malevolent clown. I get 10 to 15 emails a day from Trump, his son, his daughter-in-law, trying to sell me tacky merchandise. If these forces try again, and I think they probably will, then be prepared to fight, not shrug, like too many on Twitter advocate. And that was the year that was. It's over. Let it go. Keep listening to FRDH in 2022, though. Share it with your friends. Heck, if you're on Twitter, tell people about it there. And visit the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, and make a donation, please, to help me keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.